If you found Revelation 22, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word. Revelation 22, and beginning in verse 6. Hear now a few voices, the voice of the angel, the voice of Jesus himself, and the voice of John. Revelation 22 and verse 6 reads, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, he sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. And behold, I'm coming soon, says Jesus. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard them and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But of course, the angel said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. You got to worship God. And he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. You see, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm going to bring my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. You see, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end, and blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of which are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and that you would grip us. Grip me, O God, with the urgency of the eternity that awaits us in you. Do this, I pray, for the good of this church and the sake of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus Christ is coming again. I want you to let that roll around in your mind, weigh on you for a moment. He of whom we sing, he who came, will come again. He who came as an infant will one day come as the infinite. He who came as one mocked will come one day as one magnified. He who came clothed in humility will come clothed in majesty. He who wore a crown of thorns will come one day as one who is crowned with all glory. He who came as the Lamb of God will one day come as the Lion of Judah. He who, come to be, who came to be judged will come one day as the judge. He who came as a servant will one day come as sovereign indeed. He who came to save will one day come to reign. Jesus Christ is coming again. And this glorious truth is the hope of all history. It's the hope of the Bible. The Bible is replete. Indeed, there's some 1,800 references, not merely to his first coming, which of course we know as Christmas, the incarnation, the first advent. There are 1,800 references to his second coming, when he will come again in glory, as we have just said. 
The Old Testament is filled with the hope of his coming. As early as the book of Genesis, where in Genesis 3, you see that first time the gospel is promised, that one day one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. When it talks about crushing the head of the serpent, it is referring not merely to the cross, For in the book of Romans, it says that soon the God of heaven is going to crush Satan under your feet. There is going to come a day, fully and finally, where his head will be crushed no more. That is the promise of his second coming. The prophets had this hope. Like, for example, Isaiah. You recall that great Christmas text where he says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Notice what he says next. And the government will be on his shoulders. And then he talks about this government having no end. This is in reference not to the kingdom of Israel, but it is in reference to that great final day when he will come and reign after his second coming. Daniel too, while in exile, he spoke of the Son of Man who would one day come and he would rule with dominion, everlasting dominion over all things. It's the hope of the Old Testament, and you don't need me to tell you that it's the hope of the New Testament. Consider Jesus himself who said that just as the lightning flashes from the east and shines all the way to the west, so too will be the coming, parousia, coming of the Son of Man. That's one of the words the Bible uses to describe his second coming, the parousia. Another word the Apostle Paul uses is the word epiphania, which is the word that means he is going to make a great appearing. And that appearing Paul calls a blessed hope. There is even a third way to describe the second coming, which you see the Apostle Peter use when he, dis- when he discusses the great day of the Lord that awaits us. I want you to feel the hope of the Bible is that Jesus is coming again. It's not just the hope of the Bible, though. It's the hope of the church. You realize that his second coming ended up becoming a password, so to speak, for the persecuted, particularly in the early church. In the early church, there were uh, a bunch of folks under persecution who needed some sort of watchword to share with one another to make sure you could tell you're a Christian without outing yourself completely. That word, one of which was the Aramaic Maranatha, which means Lord, come. They would share that with one another as they lived, so to speak, underground. Alternatively, some used this password, this watchword. In the Greek, the phrase is akri u elti, which means till he comes, which if you have participated in the Lord's Supper here for any amount of time, should draw your mind to 1 Corinthians 11, where we will take of his supper until that great day when he comes again. It was the hope of the persecuted church, and the truth is, it is the full final hope of this church. It, in the final analysis, is why we sing, why we rejoice, why we have unshakable hope, not just because we have a Savior who resurrected some 2,000 years ago, but because this Savior who is reigning and resurrected will one day come and make all things new. He will appear. He will come. And on that great day of the Lord, we will experience fully and finally the glory that we glimpsed in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 22. I wonder though, is this hope of which we speak, is it your hope? Or do you find yourself, as so many do, reading, for example, the book of the Revelation, and you're more inclined towards apathy than urgency? You're like, well, he hasn't come back yet. 
I've heard all these guys guess and prognosticate on when he'll come, and it hasn't happened yet, so I don't know that I really need to live in light of that. I'll just do, I'll keep my nose down and try to stay clean. I'll do what I can, but I need not live in light of it. You tend towards apathy rather than urgency. I bet what's more tempting is for most of us in this room, the book of the Revelation, as fantastic as it is, it can lead us more towards speculation than sanctification. It's one of those books that is just bizarre, and my word, have you ever read it? My word, if you haven't read Revelation, it's better than any movie. Just read it. It's stunning, and it just makes you wonder, how is this all going to work out? And that's why, because I think the Lord knew that so many throughout the ages would be tempted along these lines. That's why I believe the Bible does not end with the fifth verse of Revelation 22. You know, if I had written the Bible, that's where I would have ended it. Look at verse 5 of 22. What a punctuation mark. It says, and we will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. That would have been a great way to end the Bible. That sounds great. We just spoke of the glories, we've glimpsed what's to come, and now we wait. But the reason I believe verses 6 and following are written under the inspiration of the Spirit is because the final glimpse is not the final word. God knows that this glimpse we were given last week, we will not receive, at least right away, that there is still life to live this side of eternity. And verses 6 and following are a warning in my judgment. They're a warning on how we ought to live in the last days. It's a warning on how we ought to live in light of eternity. Indeed, I want to say it somehow like this. I believe these verses are a warning for us that we must live today like there's no tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, I want you to feel it. The call of Christ to you this day is that you and I must live this day like we do not have a tomorrow. Do you feel the urgency that I'm inferring from this text? If you mark your Bible up, which I encourage you to do, just circle with me or underline, underscore with me, all these moments of urgency we see. Like verse 6, the things that must soon take place. Or look at verse 7, I'm coming soon. Look with me at verse 10, the time is near. Or verse 12, I'm coming soon. There is an urgency about the future. But if you stop there and only think this book is urgent about what's coming, you miss it. Because the urgency about the future is matched by the urgency concerning the present. For there is the same measure of urgency with all of these commands the angel and Jesus give us in these verses. Like, for example, look with me, if you will, at verse 7. Keep the words. Look at verse 9. Worship God. Look at verse 10. Don't seal the prophecy. Verse 11. Let. Now, the rest of that verse is really bizarre. We're going to get to that in a moment, but you'll see. And then verse 14. Wash your robes. There is a sense of urgency. I see in this text. Six urgent warnings for we who live on the edge of eternity. Six ways everyone in this room must respond to his return. We'll put it like this. Six ways we ought to live today like there is no tomorrow. So if you're taking notes, mark this down. First, number one, I want to call you to believe him today. Look with me, if you will, at verse 6. You wondered why, after all the glories of heaven in verses 1 through 5, the very next inspired words are the angel saying, Hey, John, these words 
are trustworthy and true? Why would John say that? Or why would the angel say that to John? Why would he say, you need to trust these words? I believe it's because some of us, indeed most of us, from time to time, battle a quiet, soft cynicism about the Bible. You'll read it and you want to believe it, but some of the things just strike you as unbelievable. And so you adopt this sort of eat the meat and spit out the bones approach, where take what you can get and just kind of put on the shelf those things that you're struggling with. And so many of those things that you might struggle with, particularly if you have any sort of bias against the supernatural, you're going to find that in the book of Revelation. And you're going to look at this and think, my word, is this true? Lord, I mean, the reason I'm not living in light of this eternity is this eternity seems in some degree unbelievable. And if that's you, if you have struggled for years hearing this word proclaimed, then you wonder, I just don't know if I can really believe it from angels' lips to your ears. Hear now the cry of the angel. These words must be believed. They are true. I want you to notice what he says about these words. He describes these words as inerrant words. Notice he says they're trustworthy and true. That means they are without error. There is nothing wrong with them. When God speaks, everything he speaks reflects his character. Perfect. They are inerrant, without error. Moreover, look with me if you will, they are inspired. We see that in that strange phrase, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. That's a bizarre way to say God who superintended, oversaw, inspired, as it were, the men who wrote the Bible. This book was written over a period of 1,500 years by 39 to 40 different men. And these men, the Bible teachers, were inspired. God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Theonoustos, breathed out by God. The Spirit of God superintended them such that every word in all the Bible is Scripture. Every word you see is inerrant and inspired by the Spirit of God. Moreover, if you keep looking there, you're going to notice not only are they inspired and inerrant words, these are revealed words. The angel is the one who revealed them. The Bible says also that he revealed himself by a spirit through prophets, and Hebrews even says in the final days he has revealed himself by his son, Jesus. In other words, God is a God who reveals himself to his people. These are words from God, inspired, inerrant, revealed, and thanks be to God, they're relevant. For notice what it says lastly in verse 6. They are about those things that must soon take place. That means these are words about things we haven't experienced yet. In the book of Revelation in particular, we are still living in it. There is going to come a time where everything inspired and recorded in this book will be fully and finally revealed and taken place. But we need not wait for another page of this book. The canon is closed, so to speak. Every word that God intended for his people to hear has been revealed and codified in these 66 books, the word of the living God. And I just want you to see in summary that these words that the angel is calling us to believe, they are in the final analysis, urgent words. Hebrews 4.13 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll pierce you. It'll discern your heart. These aren't like Shakespeare. These are the words inspired of the living God. And so when he speaks to you, you must receive it as such. These are not just an ancient historical text. These are the inerrant, inspired, 
revealed and relevant and urgent words of the living God. So my plea to you, my dear friends, today is if you hear anything, hear this. Don't delay. Believe him today. Believe him. Just take him at his word. If you have struggled with doubt, I encourage you to pray as the man in Mark 9 said, I believe God help my unbelief. I want to believe this. Help me to get over these skepticisms. Oh God, would you open my eyes to behold wonderful things from this book. And if you find yourself drifting, you know, you've given the Bible a try, but it just doesn't seem to speak to you and devotions are drudgery. If that's you, my plea to you this day is that you would just take it up and read it and trust Psalm 1 that says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Drink deeply, my friends, from the word. Number one, feel the urgent warning as we live this side of eternity. Believe him today. Number two, if you're taking notes, mark this down. Secondly, you need to obey him today. Look with me, if you will, at verse seven. It says, behold, I'm coming soon, and blessed is the one who, what? What's it say? Blessed is the one who forecasts the future? Blessed is the one who gets his end times charts just right? Blessed is the one who can interpret the current events in the news well? Who can see the signs, read the tea leaves? Of course not, what's it say? Blessed is the one who keeps Tehran, which means literally to keep on obeying the words of God. Blessed is he who takes this word and is not just a hearer, but a doer. Blessed is the one, as Isaiah says, who trembles at my word. I want you to feel that this is a call for us to obey it. And he said this before. In Revelation 1-3, he says yet again, blessed is he who reads it, blessed is he who hears it, and blessed is he who keeps the word of God. And the reason he roots this warning, the reason he gives us this warning is because the time is short. Verse 7 says, I'm coming soon, so you better keep the word. You know, imminency, meaning something that's about to happen close, imminency breeds urgency. And urgency for all of us tends to breed a sense of sobriety. So for example, you students in the room, funny how you can procrastinate a paper for weeks, and then the day before it's due, all of a sudden, instant urgency. <laughs> or you men who have been putting off changing that tire where the tread's low until all of a sudden you're stranded on the side of the road, instant urgency. You who are anything like me, you've been putting off diet and exercise, and then the diagnosis comes, and all of a sudden, you are the health freak. You who have been putting off discipline, devotions, discipleship, Hear the warning, there's going to come a day where having put it off for so long, you're going to wake up and not even recognize him. And more importantly, he won't know you. He will be, as Matthew 7 says, the one who looks and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. My friends, if you believe his book, you obey his book. So give yourself to this book. Nothing will sober you like the urgency of eternity. That's the second thing. Obey him, my friends, today. Thirdly, may I encourage you to worship him today, which we see in this bizarre anecdote about John uh, worshiping the angel. Now, why on earth did John do that? You, you read this and think, John, you know better. Why are you worshiping? Especially since in Revelation 19, he did the same thing. 
the, he's already made this mistake before. John, why are you worshiping that angel? You know that you should worship God. Except let's all take a step back and recall, remember that all of us in this room, we tend to praise what we prize. We exalt what we esteem. We venerate that which we value. We worship the things that make us wonder. Who amongst us has not gone to the Grand Canyon? Well, I guess I should say none of us, I hope, have. Go to the Grand Canyon and just <sighs> yawn. How many of you in this room have ever looked through a telescope at the Milky Way and just shrugged? How many of you have seen your beautiful bride walk down the aisle and just sighed? I hope not, you poor soul. <laughs> we worship that which makes us wonder. We prize that which we see as unspeakably, unimaginably glorious. I want you to see, my friends, that we are prone to worship these things, and yet, when it comes to worship of Almighty God, what do you find yourself doing? Yawning. His precious promises, you shrug at them. His urgent warnings to you, you sigh. So many of us, the, our God is far too small. This is what I repented of many times, too many times I trust this week. Oh God, my God is, my view of you is too small. I needed to hear, as you must hear this moment, the angelic warning. Don't settle, my friend, for the created when the creator has made himself available to you. Give yourself to the God who's revealed himself in verse 13. If you are struggling to worship God and you are inclined to worship all these created things that catch your imagination, just behold the God of verse 13, who is the Alpha and Omega. That is the Greek A and the Greek Z. He is A to Z and everything in between. He's everything, meaning all knowledge, all things that could be conceived of are wrapped up in him. He is ultimate reality. He is the first and the last. That's another way of saying he is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. He has always existed. He is the rule by which we judge all things. Indeed, he is the beginning and the end. And take heart, because that means the God who began his good work, he will bring it to completion. The God who spoke the world into existence, he will one day bring the world back to himself. He will consummate creation. He will come Again, so we ought to heed the warning of the angel. Number three, worship him today. May I point you to a fourth warning in this text. Number four, we ought to proclaim him today. Look, if you will, at verse 10. He says, don't seal the words. Don't seal them. He's saying the time is short. We dare not be silent. Proclaim these words. He is, in essence, recognizing the truth of Romans 10, 14, which says, We've got to recognize this. It says that how can we call on him and whom we've not believed? And how are we to believe in him whom we have not heard? And how can anybody hear this good news unless somebody preaches it? Layman's translation. Nobody in history has ever been saved but by the gospel proclaimed and believed. The gospel must be heralded and we have been called to proclaim it. Just this past Sunday while I stood in this pulpit addressing you, there was a plane that took off from Charlotte Douglas Airport, and right as it took off, it lost an engine. And on that plane, with around 100 folks or so, screaming and crying 
as the flight attendant screamed, brace, 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 there was a believer, a pastor, I believe from the West Coast, on that plane gripping his wife's hand. This just happened a couple miles from here. And as he gripped her hand and wondered if these were his last moments, he spoke a word of assurance to his wife, and then he began to proclaim. And he said to all in the plane who could hear him, I want you to know why I have hope this moment. And he began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. This is from a man who thought he was about to die. How much more ought we to feel the urgency of this moment? Who amongst us has not regretted not sharing the gospel with our long-lost father, mother, friend, spouse, child, aunt, uncle, you name it? Today, proclaim his name. That's the fourth thing. Let's turn now to a fifth warning, a fifth truth, a fifth way that we ought to live today like there's no tomorrow. Number five, I plead that you would turn to him today. Look, if you will, at verse 11. This is a bizarre verse. It says, let the evildoer still do evil. Now that word let, you don't see it in the English, but if you could read the original Greek, you would notice that that word let is a command. It's called an imperative, which means he is saying, hey, you evil people, you keep on doing that. You filthy people, keep on being filthy. Which is strange. Why would God say that? I think what the Lord is doing is uh, similar to what many of you as parents have probably done, maybe with your teenagers. Your teenager is up to no good, and to shock them, you say, go on, do it. You know what? Just do it. Sow your own oats. Do it. You're going to reap what you sow here. Ignore me. I've tried to warn you. You know what? Go ahead, and you're going to find out what's coming. This is a shocking statement from our Lord where he is saying, remember, there's going to come a day where you who in this room think that you can eventually repent. You can live in your sin today, but eventually you can turn from it. You who have been clinging to these secret sins, and you're like, one of these days I'll take care of it. As I get a little older, as, as my job settles down, as my marriage strengthens, then I will do this. Hear the words of God. There will come a day where you may not even want to repent. You think you have the freedom today. There may come a day where you are, as God describes in Romans 1, amongst those whom he has given over to the passions of the flesh. You are those who have experienced what so many in this room know, that sin tends to harden us. Have you ever noticed that if those unrepentant sins in your life harden your heart and you grow less and less convicted and sensitive to it? But my plea to you today is that you would not delay. Turn to him, repent of those sins today. There is going to come a day where you may not want to. And the truth is, as we see in verse 12, there will come a day where you won't be able to. For verse 12 says, he is going to come soon with his recompense. That is reference to the great day of judgment, where he will come and just as we would stand in a court of law today, you can't stand before a judge and say, hey, I, I promise I won't do it again. There will come a day where our time will expire. And we will no longer be granted the grace and mercy of the ability to turn from our sins. So the plea to you this day is that you would turn this day and heed the warning of the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.13. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't buy the lie that you are stationary this moment. You are either, every person in this room is either progressing or regressing spiritually. You are either drifting or on course. 
Your heart is either softening to the Lord or hardening to the Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Turn to him, I plead, this day. And may I offer you one sixth and final warning, one urgent plea, one of God's final words to us as his people. Number six, and finally, may you trust him today. For you see in verses 14 and 15, two eternal destinies. Let me read this for you. Verse 14, blessed are they who wash their robes so that, here's the first destiny, they may have the right to the tree of life and enter the city by the gates. This is promising the glory of eternal heaven. What joy awaits those of us who will get to experience heaven. But verse 15 describes those outside the city. Those who are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. My friends, there are two eternal destinies that await each of us. And I wonder how many in this room may feel the fear of God this moment. For when you look at this text, you can't help but see verse 15 like a mirror. And you're like, Kyler, I think I resonate more with verse 15 than 14. I don't feel washed. I don't feel pure. I feel stained. I may not be a sorcerer. That reference to dogs, by the way, that was a pejorative. Back in the day, dogs were not lovable pets. They were mangy and nobody wanted them and they'd eat and steal and bite people. It's a pejorative term. You may not see yourself as one of those, but you know the sexual immorality that hides in your heart. You know the murderous thoughts you have, the idolatry, how you can love and practice falsehood, and you fear, oh God, am I outside the gate? And if that's you, I want you to see the hope you have. For notice, the key difference between eternal heaven and eternal hell is that word wash. Wash. Plino, wash. What is going on with this word wash? He's referencing Revelation 5 where he says, one day there are going to be those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What is this washing we speak of? And how do I know if I'm washed? If you are struggling with that assurance, I want to give you precious hope. Counterintuitively, this verse may not strike you as encouraging at first, but hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 through 11. Hear now he, his warning and his glorious hope he offers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's not good news. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is not good news. Except some of the most precious words in all the Bible that he utters next. But you, and such I should say, were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, the ticket into glory, my friends, is not your sexual morality. It is not your sobriety. It is not your fidelity. It is not your generosity or any other ticket you've tried to scalp to get into glory. The one way in is the blood of Jesus Christ. You must be washed, as the old song says, in the blood of the Lamb. My friends, are you washed in the blood, in that soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 
This is the hope we have as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will stand before his throne of grace one day, spotless, blameless, Jude says, with great joy. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done for us. And so take hope. If you wondered whether or not you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the cry of Christ to you this day is that you believe him this day. Believe him. Take him at his word. Trust him. Worship him. Turn to him. And one day, taste and see the glory that is heaven. Eternal paradise. Fellowship with the God, the creator, the one for whom we were made. I want you to take heart, my friends. Jesus Christ is coming again. Is that hope of all history your hope? Are you trusting him this day? Are you believing him this day? Are you worshiping him this day? Are you proclaiming and turning to him? Are you trusting him, my friend? Do you cling this moment to the truth that you will only stand before him one day thanks to the washing of the blood of the Lamb? I pray you taste and see that anew this day. Oh, my prayer is that God would grip this church with the urgency of eternity, that all of us together would live today like there's no tomorrow, that we would ponder anew what the Almighty will one day do, and that our watchword as believers and as a church would ever be Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you join me as we pray to that end? With your heads bowed, as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, the call to you is clarion, crystal clear. Not a soul in this room ought not respond to the warnings of Christ in Revelation 22. Jesus is coming again, my friends. And today we must live in light of his coming. For some of you, that means you need to cry out to God and plead that he would wash you in the blood of the Lamb. In just a moment, there will be pastors down here at the front who would love nothing more than to come talk and pray with you. You come down here and pray with the pastor. They're not staring at you, but they're here waiting for you. For others of you, indeed most of you, you have been pierced by the word that is living and active. And you know that you are not living today like there's no tomorrow. You need to cry out in repentance. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Oh God, may I worship you and not the things of this world. Oh God, may I turn to you and not cling to these secret sins. Oh God, may I trust you this day. You do that in a moment. You come down here and pray. Maybe pray at the steps or pray with the pastor. May we all respond to the glory of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, do your work. I am a mere man. My words are fallible. But your word is piercing and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. So pierce the hearts of your people and my own, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? And as we stand and sing and respond, the call of Christ to you this day is to come.